I got a letter about three days later that said, congratulations, you've been successful. We'd be delighted to offer you a job as the caravan editor. And I said, what? Welcome to Career View Mirror, the automotive podcast that goes behind the scenes with key players in the industry, looking back over their careers so far, sharing insights to help you with your own journey. I'm your host, Andy Fox. Rupert Pontin, listeners. Rupert is Head of Data Communications at Kazoo and Deputy Chair of the UK's Vehicle Remarketing Association. He's an industry expert and business leader with over 35 years experience in all areas of the UK and European automotive market. He specifically enjoys driving change to maximise digital footprint and data excellence, with a focus on the identification of new exciting and profitable commercial opportunities. As a free-thinking disruptor, he finds it highly rewarding to challenge traditional and current processes and seek to push best practice to new levels. In our conversation, he shares the ups and downs of the route he's taken from buying and selling cars as a teenager to now being at the forefront of innovation in the UK's used car market. I hope you enjoy getting to know Rupert in this way and look forward to hearing what elements of his story resonate with you. This episode of Career View Mirror is brought to you by the Aquila Academy. At the Academy, we turn individual development into a team sport. We bring together small groups of leaders from non-competing organisations to form their very own Academy team. We build strong connection between team members and create a great environment for sharing and learning. We introduce the team to content that can help them tackle their current challenges and we hold them accountable to take the actions that they decide are their priorities. We say, we hold our team members' feet to the fire of their best intentions. We do this internationally with teams across the world. If you'd like to learn more about the Academy, go to www.aquili.co.uk. Hello, Rupert, and welcome. And where are you coming to us from today? Hi, Andy. Um, Good to be here. I am calling or speaking to you from uh, a little village in uh, East Northamptonshire, um, which is on the border of Cambridgeshire as well. So um, not too far from Cambridge and about, I suppose, about 80 to 100 miles north of London. Right. Okay. so I'm thinking we have had guests from Northampton before. We had Graham Wheeler, who was near Silverstone race circuit which is probably a landmark that some some of our listeners will know if they're in hope so yes yeah and where did your journey start where were you born where did you grow up I was born in Guildford in Surrey and I grew up in that uh, Surrey area uh, probably through until I was about 26 or so and it was about that sort of time 28 actually that I moved uh, up into Milton Keynes uh, and then moved a succession of times uh, in a short period before settling up here which was uh, really necessary because of the job uh, and because of access to different parts of the country I traveled an awful lot as well was well uncovered but um, yeah so that's where I am and that's how I got here. Very good so you had the comfort if you like of a nice solid foundation in the Guildford area for quite some time while you were growing up and when you were growing up uh, have you got brothers and sisters? Uh, I had 
two sisters. I now sadly only have one. I, I lost my uh, uh, middle sister uh, to cancer in 2016, which was very sad. She fought valiantly for 10 years. But I also have a younger sister who's 12 years younger than me, and uh, she lives in uh, near uh, Princess Risborough, uh, has two children and uh, works in uh, in the city in, in London for um, TFL, I think it is. Oh, right. OK. Well, I'm sorry to hear about your middle sister. That's very sad. Uh, great shame, but she fought valiantly. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, you have to celebrate uh, things and uh, her life was something to celebrate. That's that's good to hear. And that makes you the oldest. Yes. Uh, yeah. And what a, a little bit about your parents. I, I ask these questions because I'm interested in the sort of roles that people had visibility of when they were growing up. So would you sure. mind sharing a bit about your parents and what they were no, doing? No, not at all. Hugely proud of uh, of my father who's worked in property and actually uh, property management for his entire career. He's now 80 uh, and a workaholic. He retired the first time at 50, having been a, uh, the county valuer for Hampshire. Prior to that, he was county valuer for uh, uh, Surrey. And uh, after approximately eight weeks, he uh, he took a job working for Prince Charles and he ran uh, the land and properties on the Isles of Scilly for probably 12 or 13 years, which was a unique period for all of us because it was a, a fabulous job and a fabulous surrounding to be in. And, and he he was very lucky to work uh, for Prince Charles and, and very closely with him. And he's been, father has been a, a, a real uh, example setter for me and the way I choose to live my life and my work ethic all the way through my life. So hugely proud of him. My mother, absolutely fabulous, but she was not a career person. She chose to look after uh, the children uh, and she put her career to the side to do that. Yeah, and she, in later years, she has uh, done a variety of sort of local things with community and so forth. So that that's the background. So I think when, when I was young, I think I was very well looked after and enjoyed the fact that we had the luxury that mother was always able to be there to look after us. I know that's not always the case for people. Uh, and that was very comforting as a, as a youngster. But two really good role models for me uh, I'm very proud of both of them oh, that's wonderful to hear I couldn't help noticing that when you said your father was now 80 and somewhat a workaholic I smiled <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, it just made me think oh maybe that's not the absolute best reaction to to a workaholic <laughs> But it's something I identified with as being, oh, yeah, yeah. Very, that's something to be uh, approved of. Um, I don't know whether it's something to be approved of. And I think uh, for me, there's a be- there's a better balance. But I mean, these days he's 80. He still walks five or six miles a day and he is totally involved in the local shop. They live in a little village uh, not far from Stonehenge. He, he works in the little local shop. He's part of lots of clubs. He rings the bells in the church. He he clears the gardens at the church. He, he They're currently building an extension and he's out there with the builders trying to help the builders so he's a very active man uh for his age and and likes to be involved and I, you know if you if you took some of those things away from him he'd be so bored yeah i love to hear stories about people uh doing that in, the, in their so-called retirement just just mm. really staying occupied i think that's such a healthy thing to do and clearly uh, you know another part of your great foundation then rupert was the family that you were you were part of and I'd like to talk about school as well. So what was school like for you? What, what memories do you have of school? I have some uh, very fun memories. I, I went to um, a prep school uh, until I was about 12, and uh, that was a wonderful environment for me. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the, the fact that there was a very high academic 
expectation and opportunity for you to excel uh, from an academic perspective. And they pushed you very hard. Equally, there were many clubs and, and things after school. So days were long, um, but very enjoyable. And, and at the age of 12, I shifted across to uh, a comprehensive school. And that was flipping one side to the other side, because the, the comprehensive school, very, very big difference between the teachers that were very, very motivated within the prep school to, uh, you know, local authority where teachers, I think, in the old days, I'm not saying now, but certainly in the old days were, were less motivated to help with the students there were more students um and i think it was more different you know bigger class sizes and so forth uh, and that was a more difficult period for me I, I learned some hard life lessons during that period but ultimately all part of the the sort of uh, build up to the character that i am today so uh, yeah it was it was i don't have any particularly bad memories i have some sad memories some you know um, unfortunate skirmishes and bits and pieces like that but generally speaking no great loved it that's very interesting that you went from a, a prep school which would i'm guessing was a private school yes. into the public system mm. and how has that influenced you or, or do you, obviously that's that's contributed to the character as you said that you have now yep. and, and your outlook how has that helped you do you think having that rounded um combination as you went through so I think it's got it had two contributing factors, uh, significant factors. First of all, I think it taught me that you can't just assume you're going to have all the support and all the attention of those around you as you do in a prep school. Because then when you moved to a comprehensive, that wasn't the case. If you wanted to succeed in secondary school, you had to make sure you succeeded. If you were at prep school, you were going to succeed because those teachers drove you very, very hard. So I think it taught me not to take things for granted and that if you want to succeed in life, you have to work at it. And that's what I did in secondary school. One of the other key things about switching from the private system to the state system is the broader circle of people that you come into contact I'm sorry. Yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. That was just, that was my second point. I didn't get to it, did I? I? I drifted off. But you're right. The second point was understanding the different people that you see and that you meet along that journey. You meet within a secondary school environment, people that are very driven. And I believe I was very driven in that environment. But you also meet people that haven't been so lucky with their, their home circumstances, perhaps, or they haven't been so lucky with, uh, with the support network that is around them. And actually, it teaches you to be able to look at somebody and say, do you know what? You can do things. You just need a bit more help than other people. And I think that has impacted far later in life how I feel towards people that I see in a work environment that in a work environment may not be able to achieve the best they can for circumstances around them. And I enjoy being able to help and nurture and coach those people into a much better place. And I think I very much saw that in the secondary school environment. Thanks, Rupert. Thanks for sharing that. I think if you're going to stay in one environment for the whole of your school life, which is somewhat privileged, mm -hmm. then maybe you don't have as good an understanding of what other people have faced and, and don't feel the same way about helping them. I don't want to get political here. But <laughs> <laughs> Go on. People can read between the lines about yeah. where, where I might have been going there. Mm. So. When you were at school, did you start to favour certain subjects? Yeah, I think probably through secondary school, I preferred things that were less mental, physical. 
And by that, I mean, I enjoyed very much a, a subject called control technology, which I'm not even sure we have today. And design technology, I enjoyed the woodwork, the metalwork. So I enjoyed being good with my hands. I may not have been particularly good at it, but I enjoyed trying that sort of stuff. And I think, you know, today that that is still evident. I'm a very capable person when it comes to sort of doing something around the house, plumbing, this, electrics, that, whatever else. And I think uh, I I enjoyed that part of it. From an academic point of view, was there anything that really uh, appealed? I think probably I had a love-hate relationship with maths. And that's interesting because as we go through this discussion, you'll see that a lot of my career has been around numbers and data and figures. And actually, I absolutely hated them to start with, but I hated them that much that I had to try and conquer it. So it was a, uh, I'm not very good at it. I'm going to make it work. I think when I left prep school and went into secondary school for probably 80% of subjects, I didn't need to do too much academically to get through to O-levels. That may sound arrogant. It doesn't mean to. What it means is I had a very good education. The one subject I was appalling at and behind everybody was maths. Wow. Strange that, isn't it? It yeah. is given you now. <laughs> I know. You know. In a data role. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll hear how you overcame it. And uh, mm. So when you came to leave school, what thoughts did you have then? How much did you know then about the direction you wanted to go in and what were your initial steps? Well, I was fairly clear that I wanted to retire as soon as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, clearly, clearly that's not going to happen because I, I couldn't imagine not working. But at that point, I just wanted to have fun. Actually, I was very motivated at that point about cars, automotive. When I left school, instead of going to, I, I did do A-levels, but I did them uh, at night school some years later. I, I found myself not wanting to pursue any form uh, of learning after O-levels, really. I tried it for a bit, but I wanted to earn money. I wanted to have a nice car. Uh, I wanted to be able to uh, socialise and have fun. Uh, and that was what I wanted to do. And this is where I suppose I had my first influ- real influence from my father, who said that if you are really not going to go and learn and go to university and try and follow in my foot steps become a surveyor etc etc then what you must do is you must go and get a job and go and work in property and that was my first job really other than working in pubs I got a job working for an estate agent and this would have been so you left formal education for the first time in how old would you have been I left secondary school when I was 15 because of the prep school I was I was shifted a year and I went to college for about six months tops and that would have been 1984 that I left college at the age of 16. I think I went to technical college for for a short period as well Uh, but I started work in 1985 proper. Yeah and you were then in a state so that was your first proper job was in an estate agent. It was. It was working for a company if I'm allowed to say called Bridges based in Weybridge in Surrey and it used to cost me to go to work. <laughs> Say a bit more about that. <laughs> it was a brilliant job. I, I, the, the chap that owned that company was a gentleman called John Slatter, and he owned Bridges, and I turned up for an interview with him, and as luck would have it, my mother had taken me off and insisted I will, bought a nice suit 
and I was wearing the same suit as he was, and that was a bit of a chuckle for both of us. But I think he rather <laughs> he rather liked what he saw, and uh, he punted me off to uh, to the uh, the manager of the Weybridge office, the chap called Ian Broomfield, who uh, who interviewed me and, and gave me a job. And there is a funny story attached to that, and I, I will continue. So I, I started with the, with this uh, uh, Bridges as a, a training negotiator. I can't even tell you what salary it was. It was something about four thousand pounds a year. I don't even I don't even know. And it did used to cost me because at that point. I was living in a place called Cranley in Surrey and it used to cost me to get up to Weybridge and back until I became a negotiator and started selling houses. Anyway, the funny thing about it was, you know, I was I was a very positive, very you know, personable chap at that point. Um, I suppose I still am now. And I remember going through some of the day books that my boss had because we were looking for some information on some property we'd sold or something. And I found the interview notes from my interview. And I was really interested to, to read through. And he was quite objective about, you know, questions he'd asked me, this, that and the other. And then he got the summary bit at the bottom. And, you know, I felt a bit guilty reading it. But at the bottom, it just said, spotty, but nice. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what he thought about me. I went friendly. Uh, so that's what he thought about me. And he gave me a job. But I don't really care. It, it worked. And it was a good start in life. Yeah. It's a, a description you could apply to a Dalmatian or something. <laughs> yeah, but I had an acne problem. <laughs> so uh, anyway, it was it was a great, uh, that was a great point, place to start. And on the face of it, within a short period of time, it gave me some of those things that I had originally wanted to achieve. You know, your, your question was, you know, did you know what you wanted to do? I knew I wanted a nice car. I knew I wanted to have some money. I knew I wanted to be able to go out and have fun. And six months later, having gone through the trainee phase, I was selling houses and then I was able to do that. Yeah. And Weybridge is a, is a nice area. I yeah. imagine you you were exposed to other aspirational houses, cars. Absolutely. And, uh, and other imagery while yeah. you were there. And how long did you stay in that business and what was it? What did you transition to and what was the story behind that? So uh, I stayed as an estate agent until we had the stock market crash. I, I wasn't just in Weybridge. Uh, I'd moved around. I, I went to um, Walton-on-Thames. I went to East Horsley, which is where the prep school was. So it was, it was all sort of really close and, uh, and around home. And I, I saw some wonderful houses, met some very nice people, learnt commercially some of the things that I hadn't imagined as a, as a, a school child, you know, that I don't think I really properly understood that you needed to make profit in life and, and so forth and so forth. So that was, it was a really good journey. I, I, I used to sell a number of, of houses. I had a nice car from the company, et cetera, et cetera. I shifted to a different company, but once we got to uh, the stock market crash, I lost my pipeline of commission and I thought what are you doing this is not a good place to be go and do something else instead uh, and I decided I'd go and try and sell computers okay before we before we go to computers then Rupert I'm just wondering I'm picturing you as 16 years old going into that business and thinking how does any you know what on earth can a 16 year old do but six months later you were selling houses and that That's is a so sorry, I went in at seven. I was seventeen, so okay. I was I was driving. Even I had so, to drive. yeah. Even yeah. so, you're in the stockbroker belt there, mm. and you're you're selling properties. And I'm really interested in why did people take you seriously? How do you think you were able to get people to trust you to handle their sale? So that's a really good point. That's a really good question. I think I think that comes from sincerity, honesty, and the confidence that you give that person in the knowledge of your local market. So it's what you know. 
Yeah. So even as a so to, let's be clear, at 17, I was selling the houses, but I wasn't actually gaining the business and listing the houses. So okay. selling selling the house is, is different because you are taking an inquiry on a telephone. You're, you're talking to a customer, helping them find a house, walking them around the house, and then they'll give you an offer and so forth. But the gaining of the listing, which happened, you know, probably you know, not long after I started, really. So sort of 18, 19 years old to go into uh, a, a large and valuable house in, in Weybridge or Walton or East Torsley and say, yeah, do you know what? This house is worth. 350,000 as it probably would have been back in the day. And uh, I reckon we can find a customer, a buyer for this and, and get it all transacted within sort of three months or so. If you demonstrate your knowledge of the property in the local area, if you demonstrate your knowledge of the process involved in a particular task, in that case, you know, you'll need certain types of solicitors, surveys, so forth, and whatever else. If you can talk knowledgeably, confidently, confidence is very important, then you will gain the trust of the, the potential seller of the house. Thank you. I'm interested in, you know, the transferable skills that come from whatever roles my guests yeah. have done. And that is a particularly interesting one, how a younger person can create credibility and yeah. be accepted by senior customers. If you like. a, in the yeah. automotive world, you know, you often have young managers going into dealerships, for example, yes. and wanting to be able to influence what's going on there. And, and you're right. And it comes back to the basics. And if you're going to do a job, whatever that job may be, you can waltz in and you can just drift along and do that job and you'll last or you won't last. The key thing for me is if you're going into a new job, research it beforehand. There are some basics some fundamentals. Whatever you do, whatever part of, of uh, the economy you're in, there is a process and a procedure. And if you've prepped yourself properly before that, you, you, you're going in walking rather than sitting waiting to learn. There are processes and procedures within every job. Learn them and you can talk about them and you will appear and you will be, not you will appear, you will be capable and competent to do that job. Yeah, and that will uh, give people uh, confidence yeah. in you. So then came a recession, economic downturn. Your pipeline in the real estate business yep. disappeared. Yeah, it did. So question time. And you you then identified computing as a, an opportunity. So how did you find that and uh, where did you go? It was a complete disaster. <laughs> Absolute <laughs> disaster, if I've already said it. So, how did I uh, identify? I just decided that I could get a nice car and computer sales. People made lots of money and therefore it was easy and I'd just go and do it because I could talk to people and they'd buy stuff. The fundamental problem I had was that I didn't understand computers. And by the time I'd worked out what the very early 8086 and 8088 processes did and, and how that would help somebody in a commercial environment, they moved on to the next chip. So I was given some good training. It was a company called Assistel, uh, which became a company called Assistel Spartex. Don't even know where they are these days. But we were selling computers in a very early day. You know, the, the mobile computers at the time had a screen probably the size of, uh, of your mobile phone. And they lived in a box the size of a, an old Singer sewing machine. And you'd sort of lug this thing around. But yeah, it was, it was a nine-month period in which I learned a lot, but not fast enough probably sold two computer cables, was given a Peugeot 205, which I crashed heavily on the A3 at Tolworth within a week of having it, and therefore I moved on. Right. <laughs> really simple. And, so you were able to eliminate 
computing from your inquiries as a possible career <laughs> yeah that 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 was gone i think probably with that environment i was a little lazy and i didn't do what i just said to you i didn't learn properly right from the start it was a busy environment there were lots of experienced capable people around me we would sit at our desk with our feet on the table smoking marlboro cigarettes till they were coming out of our ears and there was too much fun to be had rather than the serious stuff of learning to be able to make money that that there was an error for me so did you have something to go to at the end of the nine months or did you part nope. company and then look for something uh we parted company i should add at this point that in the background i was through this period i was working uh in a pub pulling pints so i had a little bit of money coming in from that i was also and this is relevant because this led me to my next decision i had been buying and selling cars and selling them on the piece of grass outside my parents house in cranley since i was about 15 and that was sort of supplementary money i'd do it a bit and then i'd be working too hard and then i'd do another couple of cars and so forth so i was doing a little bit of that so young chap buying a car used to buy it out of oh where were they coming from guildford car auctions and i'd take it home i'd do it up because inevitably that age and the amount of money i was spending it needed filler it needed some this it needed some that some love and a polish and out it sat on the, on the front so having left uh, the computer company i think in my own mind i decided that uh why shouldn't i just do cars i love them why, why not be involved in the industry as a whole? To the horror of my parents who said, what are you talking about? We they were respectable. Aren't... They were respectable yeah. people. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, your father's a surveyor. He's the county valuer for Surrey. What are you talking about, man? And I just thought, you know what? I'm going to give it a go. And I applied for a sales job at Wadham Stringer, who then became Wadham Kenning in Guildford. And they were agents for franchised uh, for uh, Austin Rover. And I went along and I met a, uh, a gentleman called Andy Wallweber, who's uh, been in the industry for many, many years. And he was the first person to give me the opportunity to be involved in the motor industry and sell cars. And I still see Andy today from time to time. Andy's a great chap. And he always reminds me and introduces me still to this day to people is, I gave this man his first opportunity in the motor trade. And uh, no, I love Andy. Andy's great. He taught me some really good uh, lessons about the industry, about selling cars, and hell, we had a job to do. We were selling metros and maestros, for goodness sake. But I, I very swiftly realised in those early days at Wadham Kenning that selling, for me, selling a used car was far more fun and financially worthwhile than selling a new car. I couldn't sell Rover 800s new. The only people that bought Rover 800s new, I think, at the time were the coal board. But bringing back two years later with 60,000 miles on the clock, and I could sell until the cows came home. So I developed a passion, I suppose, for used cars. Right. That I can understand that. And what I'm also noticing, though, is how you were quite entrepreneurial then as a 15-year-old and the idea that you liked working with your hands. So you were able to take these cars from Guildford Car Auctions and bring them home and do the necessary work yeah. that needed to be done to make them to, to add some value refurbish them and then be able to uh, sell them on so mm. that, that's um well that's interesting because you're right and through this period when i first started driving and so forth i had some very blunt lessons from my father about vehicles i had 
three cars before I was even able to drive that was sitting on the driveway that had come from grandparents and so forth. And within four months, I think, of passing my test, I had this little blue Triumph Toledo 1300. And I blew the engine sky high coming back from Portsmouth down a hill trying to make the car do 95 or whatever it might have been. Police officer, I was just thinking about it, not really going over 70. And I took it home and I said, oh, the car's broken, blah, blah, blah. It needs to be fixed. Fix it. And father said, no, you fix it. So actually that put me in a position where I had no car. I couldn't go and see um, my friends, my girlfriend. I couldn't get to work. And I took the engine out of this car and I took it to pieces and I replaced the bottom end bearings and I put it back together and made it work. So that set me on this journey of, yeah, you can do it. If you try and you plan, you can do it. So in the background of all these jobs, I was always fiddling around with cars. I blew up other car engines, usually a Triumph of some sort or another. So I'd have to put it together again and blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, you're right. That early experience where I was stupid enough to blow it up, expect the parents to fix it. And actually took the thing to pieces in the freezing cold with an engine ramp, with an engine hoist on some ramps in the front garden of the, of the house. It was, it was quite a journey. It's quite mm. a thing. No, interesting to connect those, you know, the, your favorite, your, the, you like the technical subjects at school hmm. and then how that in, enabled you to uh, get your first entrepreneurial uh, opportunities going. Hmm. You were at Wadham Kenning, then selling Rovers. What happened after that? I decided I wanted to sell nicer cars because the commission would be bigger. So uh, I went and I got a job at Coombs of Guildford, which is a BMW dealer now uh, owned by Vines, the Vines Group. And bizarrely, more recently, uh, in my Kazana role, I actually went back to the premises next door because they'd moved the BMW dealership next door. Uh, and Vines became a customer, and it was quite bizarre to be standing in that room. Yeah, you know, I'm in sure. that dealership. Yeah, so I, I went to them. Uh, for a short period of time till 1992. So I think I was probably only with Coombs for nine months to a year. And then we had another, and I can't remember what it was. I was thinking about this the other day. So I was talking to somebody about it. We had another change in circumstances in the economy. And I, I don't remember whether it was when Maggie Thatcher left or, or, or something happened. And, and my boss came to me and he said, well, market's gone. We don't need you selling cars anymore, unfortunately, because with all that's going on, our sales will go down. So I'm afraid you're redundant. I felt very sad about that because I enjoyed BMWs. I still have a BMW today. And it was difficult to lose a job, not because I'd done something wrong or I wasn't performing, but just because of the market. And that led to, to quite a dark period for me for a while because the economy uh, and the employment market did take a downward turn. I, I couldn't find anything. So I was back to Guildford car auctions and so forth, bringing these uh, these not so beautiful cars back and making them beautiful and selling them on and you know, working in the pub that I could and, and you know, just anything really for, for what was quite a, a difficult probably nine months or so. What sort of um, age were you then, Rupert? Oh, 102. So I must have been 22, 23. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. 24, 24. Okay. Um, so it was a tough time, but uh, I got to the point where I decided, that's it. I'm just going to go and travel. Get it. I'm going to go and see the world. Um, my sister had done it. 
and uh, she said, "Oh, you, you've missed your chance. You know, you should have travelled when you were younger." And I thought, "Oh, well, okay. <laughs> when you were younger, oh, yeah, I know." Well, <laughs> that's harsh, isn't it? When you're 24, yeah, it is. you've missed your chance. Yeah, oh, she she'd gone off at 18 or something and done this, that, and the other, and uh, did, did, travelled a lot of her life. In in fairness, um, girls, but... girls are just always ahead at that age. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you might be right. Um, but yeah, so um, in the background, unbeknown to me, my mother had found a job advert and she'd put my CV in for a job. Okay. And I got an interview and mother came to me and she said, have you seen this post? And I said, because the post had gone to her house. I wasn't living there. I was living somewhere else. I, I left home uh, very early. I left home at 17. Um, anyway, so um, she said, well, you better read it. So I opened this thing up and at the top of the logo, it said glasses. And I thought, what glasses? Glasses tied. I said, what have you done? And she said, oh, well, I saw a job advertised and I thought you might be quite good at it. So I, I've applied for you. I said, oh, for goodness Plus, sake. Classic mum behaviour. Absolute classic mum behaviour. So there I was with this piece of paper that said, come and meet Leslie Allen um, in Weybridge uh, 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 at I don't know, 10 o'clock on such and such a date. So I did. And that was when I moved to Glasses and that would have been not the job. I did. I went through. I went did through. They asked. Did they ask? So, Rupert, why does your mum want you to have this? <laughs> I don't think they really knew that mother had applied for it, and I, no, I didn't show sure a long time after. <laughs> well, it was it was odd because you know I turned up and I said I'm here for an interview, and I'm seeing this chap, and they said, "Oh, what was the job for?" And I, I don't really think I had a clue what the job was for. Other than editor, anyway, I had three interviews, and it, it drove me up the wall, and I knew that I was I was batting against a, a, a difficult team here because what they said in the advert was over 30 x forces preferred so forth so forth so forth and i was 24 and that was that and i just thought well i don't know why they decided to see me something must have appealed but i don't know what it was so you can only go in and be who you are so glasses was in back in those days was very 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 traditional and, and leslie allen was somebody that had been in the forces all his life and most of the other editors had come from various different parts of the forces because they were very structured uh, it was a bit of the old boy network as well um but they were very structured you know it forces people tend to be very very structured and that's what they needed they felt they needed within the editorial team at glasses it's just changed say, sorry i just thought rupert for our international mm. listeners just say what glasses is uh, apologies. Yes. Okay. So glasses uh, or glasses guide, as it was probably known at the time, is a vehicle valuation company. And at the time they produced books that would list the uh, perceived used car pricing from a retail price and a trade wholesale price so that a car dealer or somebody involved in the car industry would be able to know what to pay for a vehicle of a certain age and mileage. Thank you. And very relevant to your where your career continued to yeah. to to go, isn't it? And, very much uh, so. So, so you got the job. Well, I did, and and it was it was fabulous. I did three interviews. After the third one, I got home. I I battled through this. I the car dropped its oil all over the driveway when I got back, and I said to my mother, <laughs> I said, "It was That's exhausted it. as well. <laughs> yeah, it was exhausted. Never going to happen." Anyway, I got a letter about three days later that said, "Congratulations, you've been successful. We'd be delighted to offer you a job as the caravan editor." And I said, what? Because, of course, to most people in the trade, the glasses guide was a vehicle valuation product for cars. 
and I knew they did commercial vehicles. I had no idea they did caravans. So I pitched up for my first day at work and I, I was given the job as caravan editor. And for the first couple of years or 18 months of my career working with glasses, it wasn't about cars, which is what I'd aimed to do. It gave me a nice enough car. It gave me a good salary and I traveled an awful lot. But it was all about researching the caravan market and setting uh, the prices for caravans. So wow. unique. Yeah. I didn't even realise today that there was a caravan guide. So uh, they do, yeah. Um, there's a motorcycle guide and uh, and so forth. But um, yeah, I mean that's that's weird because as, as we'll find out later that I went back to glasses and in my role at glasses later in life, I stopped all physical guides, took ah. all the physical stuff away. So, but actually at, at that age, you know, it was about the caravan guide. I, I got a very good grasp of that quite quickly. Uh, unfortunately, a colleague of mine um, had an accident and I had to take over the motorcycle guide for a short period of time. And I was seeking, so it had been, it was a very traditional environment and, and everything was done in a very old fashioned, basic way. And I was that annoying little upstart that came in and said, oh, my God, really? Is this seriously how you do it? Now, I am not joking when I say that in the very early days, the editors at Glasses would create these depreciation curves for vehicles. And they would do it on an architect's drawing board with some knicker elastic and drawing pins. And so you would start on a very late plate car and they would pin the shape of this depreciation curve and then they would apply numbers to it. I mean, that wasn't the case when I arrived, but I, I will tell you that um, we had a mainframe machine there and everything else. I had a secretary who would come in and she, I would dictate to her and she would take notes, this, that and the other. And I would write my little editorial pieces by doing that or either that or writing it out longhand and giving it to them to type. So I brought in a computer from home. And I put it on the desk and I started to type these things out and, and do that. And I, I was given a formal warning and asked to remove the computer from the building because we didn't use computers. No, no, no. Which I just think is hysterical. But during that period, I mean, I, I wanted to change things. I wanted to make things better. Did I succeed? Probably a little bit. But at that point, I was no huge changer. But I did get the opportunity to start a new guide. I started the older car value guide and I did some fleet products and this, that and the other. And uh, it was a really good period. But I did eventually end up as car editor, which was good. Uh, and I was specialist car editor there for some years before I moved on. So how long altogether were you with Glasses? So I started in 93 and I left in 2001. Right. Okay. Mm. And I'm just wondering now about your relationship with data and maths. And so yeah. this was the first role where you were, I, I think, perhaps more, more in, into data. And did you, had you conquered your relationship with maths by then? Was this, um, were you enjoying, <laughs> were you enjoying that side of it? Uh, yes, I did. I, I very much enjoyed it. It's not sort of deep data analysis in the way that we have today. But, you know, in those early days, we would be seeing some records of auction prices come through, which would be fed in uh, into the system. We had a team of uh, of people, or what they call the data analysis team, I think, and they would look at the old paper auto trader magazines, and they would look at the adverts, they would find the code of the, that particular car in the mainframe system, they would put in that they'd seen one advertised for X amount of money. And it, this would appear in my mainframe in the background. But I certainly became, because of, of what I was doing in terms of creation of depreciation curves back in the day, in terms of we need to take 3% off this car this, this month, I developed a much better relationship with the numbers. I, wouldn't, I would never say it was easy for me, 
And I would, if if there was a calculation to be done, I probably had to do it twice just to be double sure. But hey, it's it, it was a learning journey. You get better at it over time. And were you forecasting future values at Glasses? No, I wasn't. So the what I was doing there for the time that I was editor was I was looking at what was happening in the marketplace and I was looking at the limited data that we did have and I was deciding on what the current value of a vehicle would be. But of course, in deciding what a current value is, you start with the, the data that you see uh, for a you know, uh, let's put it in today's terms, a 2021 car is selling at £10,000, the 2018 car is selling it at £7,000. And you create this kind of curve that reflects the marketplace. And then you decide whether you're going to apply that off to other vehicles. And I, I won't go any further with that, because that's methodology, I think, that's probably, that, that is still in place uh, uh, within um, some data providers. So at that point, we I was not doing any form of forecasting. And actually, at that point, Glasses didn't have a forecast product. We were being pushed to do that because of course cap had come into the marketplace and they were competition to us and they had produced a forecasting product for the contract hire and leasing industry and we really didn't have one and it was a chap called adrian rushmore who inevitably having spent a long time at glasses ended up at cap uh, he developed our original forecasting product, the glasses forecasting product. And actually, as part of my career, I did work in the development department for some time, and I helped actually bring his vision to life by bringing uh, a, a team of, they were external consultants together to actually develop a an online product that would enable us to provide forecasted figures. Yeah. So you left, 2001, you left glasses. Yep. And where did you go to and why did you leave? I left because in 2000, I had twins, not me physically, but I had twins. And actually, as a the car editor role, uh, you traveled an awful lot. Now you were probably away three, four nights uh, a week for three weeks because you were around the country. You were off on trips abroad with learning about new cars and so forth. And my wife said to me, you can't keep doing this for two reasons. Number one, you get paid slightly less in the market because you get all these nice trips which is great for you uh, and number two i need help <laughs> so you're going to change your job so i did and it came around on a trip to see the new audi a8 in 2000 and i was over in neckerson i think it was with um, a chap called keith howlett who uh, was a bit of a pioneer at audi uk and he had this vision that it well, the first thing he said was look we're bringing out new a4 we need to get uh, new a4 a good residual value in the marketplace how do we do it and i said well you need to do this 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 and this and we had a number of discussions over this trip away, kind of ignoring the Audi A8. But that was his, you know, his remit. He was in charge of used cars at the time. It was his goal to get the the new A4 as it was at the time back into the marketplace with decent residual value. And it got quite heated one night. After we'd had a few drinks, and eventually he said, "Well, why the hell don't you just go and do it for me?" So I said, "All right, I will." And that was it. I didn't actually work for Audi UK. I worked for British Car Auctions because the used car remarketing function for Audi was at that point, Keith had, had uh, contracted it out to British Car Auctions. So I went through a process of uh, interviews with British Car Auctions. And I don't know whether British Car Auctions liked me or not, but I think Keith Howlett eventually said, just employ him now. So that was it. I ended up working for British Car Auctions. And that was the period that I moved up here, having lived in Walton on Thames for some years and, and that area, having moved from Cranley as I, as I grew up and uh, moved up here because the Audi remarketing department called the Audi Stock Market uh, was based in Peterborough. 
so that's why I ended up where I am and I'm what 20 miles from Peterborough and uh, yeah so that that was the reason for the change it was an opportunity that came up uh, I was excited because I was working with the brand but the thing that really appealed to me Andy was that this again was something completely different because Keith said by the way Rupert we don't use normal remarketing use car remarketing procedures I've created something called the Audi stock market and I said great what does that mean and he said no paper don't want paper and I don't want physical auctions I want everything done online so working with BCA, BCA had put together a variety of different products that enabled probably the first online auction to sell uh, Audi cars, probably the first online, it was then white labeled, but uh, online purchasing platform. And I was fascinated because it was change. It was different. It was going to make a huge difference to the industry. And it was a product that was originally started by a chap called Keith Rogers, who worked for a long time and ended up a sales director of BCA, but he was part of it. And yeah, that was it. So we had, that was the only way we sold cars. Uh, it was either on a weekly online auction, which I would run through a computer um, or a laptop. Um, we had a number of vehicles click to buy uh, on a platform. And I had a sales team that would pick up the phone to the Audi dealers to sell them uh, wholesale stock. And it was a really exciting time because when I turned up, it, you know, BC had created this environment and they got some admin type people sitting in place, but it wasn't really selling cars. And of course, for Keith's vision to work, which he'd sold to, to, to Audi and VAG, you know, paperless, not going to have physical auctions, blah, 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 blah. It needed to be driven. We needed to make sure it worked because we needed to sell vast quantities of A4s because A4 was being pushed heavily into the marketplace. And we needed to get that residual value up because at the time, A4 sat quite a way behind 3 Series and C-Class. So that was my remit. Go in there, make it work, get the A4 residual value high. Everything will be great. There's so much in there, Rupert. I like yeah, the ending. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. Thank mm. you very much. What I'm thinking, I like the ending. I like the, the point that you make about A4 was at that point not competing for, in terms of residual value with uh, Mercedes and BMW product. I also like that you are using your, in no particular order, this is just as it comes back to me, you're using your passion for used cars that's involved in this role. You're yeah. also using you, what you learned at Glasses, what you learned about value situations you're taking that knowledge and experience and you're using it in a different way to say okay what do we need to do okay the numbers we're looking at the valuations we look at there are an outcome that's a result you know there's nothing mm. we can do about those they mm. are what they are the market sets those so no what... no see, oh, I dis see i disagree with that and and i think that's what made the difference because in what you just said there is right and and many manufacturers at the time and i think many now just say okay well look it isn't cars let's sell them and that's the value so we'll take that value yeah but my whole point was and this is why keith was very interested was that don't just do that you need to do different things that will make people think that that car is short or particularly good and they're not going to get any and create 
a demand that will drive that residual value up. So I don't I don't think it was right to just say, you know, you, you those were the values, so you were stuck with them. You weren't. And that was my point. You have to drive it in a different way. Yes. So you're using the the knowledge of the data to say, let's do something differently. So Because what I'm thinking is the, the values that you're looking at today are what they are. But you were saying, well, let's make sure that the values for A4 in the future from today onwards are going to be yeah. different. And so what do we need to do differently? What inputs do we need to do so that the, the values are different, are higher? in the future and and i think Mm. that's really interesting that you were doing that and then the third thing is that you've gone from don't bring that computer in here laddie yes (laughs) yeah completely (laughs) absolutely in the space of a few years (laughs) don't bring that paper in here yeah don't don't let me see you using paper and you're then 20 years ago at the beginning of the digitization you know, yeah. we use digitization all the time now don't we as a you know yeah. it's a buzzword uh, but yeah. you were at the beginning of that journey so mm. uh, yeah a, a wonderful passage yeah um, it and- was i mean it was interesting too because uh, being bca you never do just one job so whilst audi probably thought i was just concentrating on the stock market there were lots of other things that i was doing in terms of development and management of other customers other oems um, at the same time and also the transference of that knowledge from just being used for audi into being used for other uh, oems and, and remarketing so it was a really really vibrant exciting period i really enjoyed it and every year as a team, we exceeded expectations and target every single year for the entire period I was there. It was just brilliant. What a team. They were brilliant. But that, again, is another part of what I enjoy doing, taking some of those guys who were just there to to do an admin job. And, you know, there, there were a couple of ladies in there that just turned up to an admin job. Twelve months later, they were selling cars. They were really, really brilliant. And developing those team members from, yeah, I'm coming in at nine, going home at 5.30 to I'm here at 8.45. Let's be ready. What have we got? What's coming out today? How many cars can you give me? Who can I put them to? How did you do that? How did you create that environment? That's really difficult. I think I I involved them as a team rather than, oh, hi, morning, Joe. Just sit down over there. I'll get you some work in a minute. Hey, what did you do last night? How are you feeling today? Come on. We've got a lot of cars coming in today. What do you mean you, you don't feel you can talk to people? You can. You're a really personal person. Give them the confidence. Give them a structure. Give them something they can follow. Tell them they can sell some cars. It wasn't long before we started to pay a bit of, um, I'm sure we paid some bonus or some commission for some of them. But, you know, that, that again, helped to, to focus them. Yeah, I don't know. It, it was Back in the day, it was a difficult journey to move them. And I, I probably shouldn't say too much about how we did it, if I'm honest. But there were certain things that I could do to help bring them along the journey. I don't think I had anybody in that team. Oh, no, I did. I had one person. There was just one person in that team that didn't enjoy the selling of the cars. Yeah, it was it was fun period. Really enjoyed yeah. that. That was a great unit. And, it, you know, the average stock market is still there today. It's run by somebody else. And I'm sure they've done many more wonderful things than, than I ever did. But it is still there. BCA have retained that contract with Audi all these years. And they've done it by excellence and a really cohesive team. Very good. Now, on a different podcast, I would ask you 
what are some if you were able to say i'd be really interested just to guess my listeners are thinking why didn't you ask him what are some of the things you do to increase the residual values of cars that you're selling in the future but that <laughs> yeah. is not what we're here for we're here to talk no. about your career journey and some of the uh stories from that so i'm um, that's why i'm not going to probe no, that's into, fine. you know if i'm launching a car what should i do to make sure it has really strong residual values so okay so bca you spent some time there and we know you're not there now. So what, what happened after BCA and how did uh, it happen? 2008 happened and the market crashed. <laughs> they keep um, up, don't they? These... they? They do, yeah. <laughs> the eco- well, it was the economy. It was, it was just the economy just disappeared. Doing its thing. Doing its yeah. thing. Yeah. So it was, was it 2008 or 2009? I can't remember now. Eight. It was 2008. And the economy crashed. And the business did a significant reorganization and I fell by the wayside. Uh, and that was very sad because I enjoyed that job immensely. But, you know, things happen in life for a reason. And it's identifying what that reason is. You may not necessarily be able to do that immediately, but it necessitated a complete rejig of my life. And that's good from time to time. So I was put in a position where I couldn't find another job that was paying a third of what I was earning beforehand. Children were eight, expensive. My wife was an at-home mum. She did a bit of part-time work. So there was nothing coming through the door at all. And I was on a garden leave period of six months, I suppose. Might have been longer. I don't really know. But anyway, Christmas time, 2008, and the bank balance is looking grim. I'm looking in the mirror in the morning saying, you've got to do something here because you're you're beginning to fall to pieces. You know, you, you, you've got no purpose. You can't just keep sitting around. So, so for me, as you, you've deduced, uh, you know, from our conversation so far, uh, I've always been doing something. So I did what I know best to do. And I thought, I'm going to start a business. So I'm just going to sell cars and let's see how it goes. So I took the remaining money that I had left sitting in the savings account uh, on January the 1st or January the 4th, 2009. I trotted down to... Um, uh, the accountant, I said, set me up a business. I'm going to be selling cars. Um, I'm going to do it from home. And then I trotted down to BCA in Bedford and I bought six cars. And a mate of mine said, you'll never do it from home. Now, I'm lucky uh, in where I live. One of the benefits of living in a cheaper part of the country from a housing point of view, I've got space to put nine cars on the driveway. And I was able to create an office in, uh, that had a separate access so that we could you know, talk to customers and so forth. I'm a bit tucked away, so a little bit difficult to find. But a mate of mine said, you'll never do it from home. It won't work. That's what mates are for when you're setting up a business. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? I, I hate it, but he was right. <laughs> he was absolutely right. We sold those six cars in five days. And it was clear that it was the business was going to work, which I, if I'm honest, at that point, I was expected to work, but not with that degree of immediate success. Because How did you sell them? Where did you market them? I used Austrader. So I set up a website at night um, over the Christmas period because I kind of knew what I was going to do. So I set up my own website, knew the company name, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The first thing we did when we bought those cars was get them back from Bedford, put them through a local garage to put them through a full safety check. I won't go through all the processes, but what every dealer should do, whether they're large or small, to make sure the car was as good as it could possibly be, given its age uh, and its mileage. Can Um, I just say, Rupert, I'm just wondering, was there anyone better equipped than you at that point to buy a car at the right price, do you think? uh, I don't know. I'm sure there were. Um, But you would have had... had somewhat of an advantage given your career up to that point because uh, i've never sold used cars but i mm. um 
reliably informed that it's all in the buying. You know, you buy them at the right price. And, yeah, uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't yeah, necessarily yeah. agree with that. Um, okay, you, good, good. Yeah, you do have to buy them at the right price. It's what you do in between and how you treat your customer. Okay. Okay. So there's a big oversimplifying. Yeah, oversimplifying. But well, no, you're I, not. You're I, not actually, Andy, because there are a lot of people that think it is just about let's buy that car at the cheapest price. Let's just stick a uh, t- stick a retail price on it. It'll sell. Job done. It's not. There's a lot in between, and I'm not going to talk about that for two reasons. Number one. I'll probably do it again and number two in my current position i probably shouldn't go through it because a lot of it is what we do so okay but it, so i yeah. won't i won't i won't uh, force you to do that but i was just thinking yes okay you are not walking into this you've done it before at that, that point you've done it before and you come with a solid background in understanding used car valuations and mm-hmm. how to sell cars before you yeah. set up your own business which you then were also had a digital mindset so you set yep. up your website yeah uh, and you were well placed to sell those uh, six cars in five yeah. days. Mm. So we grew very, very quickly. And within two weeks, I, I had gone and I shared premises with a business that is uh, very, very successful today. But we we had um, uh, a converted barn uh, just off the A14 down a, a track, which had no forecourt or nothing, but it was a nice place to do business. We Between us, within six months between us, we had over 100 cars on that site. And we probably had ourselves 50 plus. And every day in the morning at seven o'clock, I'd go down there, open up the unit that was all the storage area that was behind. And I'd pull out the best part of 50, 60 cars to create this forecourt. And then at seven o'clock every night, I'd put them all back. And I did that every day for the best part of five or six months until we built a forecourted, you know, proper forecourted area around it. It was, that period was one of the most exhilarating, exciting scary periods of my entire life because I didn't know how it was going to work. I hoped it would work well. I was clear very quickly that it was going well, but you have to keep on it all the time. Every inquiry I was analysing, where to come from, why to come from, what did it cost me, et cetera, et cetera. Every expenditure on the car, was it necessary, and so forth. It was absolutely fabulous, but you're constantly pushing. So there was this business and I needed it to grow because I needed, I wanted to make the money. But you got to really horrific stages where, you know, the market would go quiet for six weeks. And at, at, that, at that point, I wasn't putting money in a pot. Everything was going in more stock for the forecourt. And you get to the point where my wife would say to me, um, well, you haven't got any money for food for this week. And I'm like, OK, uh, credit cards Mm-mm, maxed out. And you got to the point where I would have to go and trade a car off the pitch just to get some money in, just to pay some bills. Really annoyingly, because you then inevitably, two weeks later, you buy the same thing back or something really similar for more money. But it was just part and parcel of, of the growing pains of doing it. But those moments, those weren't the euphoric highs. Those were the complete panic moments that you don't have any money to put food on the table. I'm sure people go through it in lots of different ways in all walks of life. But And I empathise with them because that was just terrible just terrible and it happened but that was all part of my personal strategy about growing the business it's not necessarily listen folks don't do it that way there there are better ways to do it it was just what I felt comfortable with and what I needed to do at that particular time (laughs) yeah it's not a not a prescription it's uh, what happened yeah um how has that influenced how you look at life now or what's the 
the the impact of that on your mindset having been through that yeah period and survived it that it and i've i've been in similar places since that you you need to do it it is a very risky if we talk about that whole business it it was driven out of necessity but it wasn't long before the, the employment market picked up but i kept doing it for some years i was shattered it taught me that if you do the basics and you believe in yourself and you're confident in the structure you have around you, then take that risk. If you fail at something, it's not a failure, it's a learn, right? And that, that's a mentality. And we'll come to some of the sort of background stuff in my psyche, I suppose, or the, or the way I, I personally operate, but uh, in a while, I should imagine. But I, I would do it all again in that way. I would. So, so it got to the point where the economy picked up and yeah. there were jobs then available, but you carried yeah. on with your car business. I did for a while. And then what I did was I went and got a job somewhere else, but I kept the car business. So we had ah. the two things running at the same time. What caused you to get the job? I wanted some holiday without having to panic. So, I mean, we we, we were having nice holidays, but I, I think uh, it was 2011 or 12, uh, and I was sitting in florida buying cars online uh, on the auction to then organize my drivers you know from my laptop to go and pick them up and get into the workshop etc cetera, etc cetera. And, and my kids said to me why can't we just have some fun and i thought you know what you're probably right and i'd be shattered i was absolutely shattered because i was running the business very lean and it was a seven day a week business i was open seven days a week and then on a Sunday night, I'd work all night because I'm looking at, you know, this isn't unique. There are lots of other people out there that still do it, but it, it's, a, it's a reality. It's a journey. You know, Sunday nights were gone um, in those days. There are better ways to do it these days because Kazala developed a better way to do it. Um, but, you know, I was, I was pricing stock all night to get up to be at BCA Bedford for nine o'clock in the morning to look at the cars for the sale to start at 10 o'clock so I could buy five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten cars to get them back, blah, 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 blah. And it was just uh, an awful lot. So I, d- I decided I would go back into employment, but keep the business running on a smaller scale in the background. And I did. And we ran that business uh, through till 2015. And then in 2015, I needed to stop it because of what I was doing as my mainstream job then. Right. That all makes sense. Hmm. Makes sense, Rupert. Thank you. And what was the job that you went into then when you kept the business running at the same sure. time? That was with Car Shop. Um, I was their business development and relationship manager. And my role there was to be helping the business to get stock. I won't go into the business model because that's that's not appropriate for, for me to do so. Um, I don't think it's probably in the public domain, but I was there to manage relationships with people that we um, got stock from and also to make sure that the sites that we had had enough cars. So Car Shop um, is a multi-brand used car Yes, uh, now owned by Sitna Group. And we had four sites at the time. We put a, a new site in, in Norwich. And you know, it's a difficulty that as a business we face today, and that is being able to get enough stock to, to fill all the spaces on, on the site. All of a sudden, we went from 3,000 or 3,500 vehicles to needing 5,000 vehicles. Where do you magic 1,500 vehicles from overnight? And so, yeah, it was a, it was a really interesting period that uh, there were some really hard lessons to be learned in that. And there, for me, were some things that I learned during that period about the type of person and type of businessman I was and want to be. And I'm going to leave that one there. Okay. 
That was a very clear message that we don't want to go there. Uh, can I ask what kind of businessman you want to be? Or would that be? Uh... No, I don't. I don't. No, I don't think I'm going to. Ask right. that. I mean, listen. I'm not saying that I had a bad time. I enjoyed that job at Car Shop. I'm just saying that during that period, I learned some really, really good lessons. And if I was you, I'd be saying, "What were those, Rupert?" And I'm, I don't think it's right for me to go into that. But it, it made a real change to the, the type of person that I wanted to be, uh, and that's that was a really important journey at that particular time. Okay, so you made some decisions then about the sort of business you want to be and and what did you do then to move forward with that in mind so I went back to running the car business for a short period back at full steam so we dropped down to maybe 25 units or so and went back and and raised them up and I promptly got a phone call from somebody that said help we've broken something and we don't know what to do and I went off and did some consultancy work for glasses again who at this point were owned by the Auto Vista Group, were they? I can't remember. No, it was Eurotax at the time. They hadn't changed the name. Anyway, in the UK, they'd done something really interesting. And they tried to update the valuation methodology. And they tried to put some automation in place. And it was less successful than they had anticipated. Um, so I had to tread a little bit carefully about what I say around this. Um, so I went in to look at what had gone wrong and gave a synopsis of what I felt had happened and what they needed to do. It took me some months to do it. And uh, as a direct result of that, I was offered a position in 2013, I think it was, to go back and help move the business forward. Uh, from a position, an uncomfortable position that they had found themselves in. So I went back to glasses after all these years, uh, which was quite astonishing. And I went back into the editorial team to look after that editorial team and uh, help transform the business from some older methodology, valuation methodology, to some newer valuation methodology, which required some significant personnel changing Uh, and some significant changes to the systems in the background, all of which, you know, uh, the group were were happy to do, make no mistake. I think the guys that were were in that team had been doing the job a really long time, and they were used to doing things in the same way. And what they were doing was entirely fit for purpose. There was just a better way to do things. And that's what I went to do. It was quite difficult because some of the guys that I worked with back in the 90s were still there. It was a a business that had incredible staff loyalty. Uh, And I think for me to start with, I found it quite difficult to come in in a a different uh, capacity with a different remit to make change. But again, really exciting period to go in to an incredible brand name that that needed a bit of help. It was was amazing. Really, you had history with that you had a background that was part of your story. Very much so. You know, there were those years in in the 90s. I met my wife at Glasses, uh, and to go back in there, it was was all a bit surreal, yeah, back into a building that we'd gone into sort of 15 years previously, uh, 13 years previously, sorry, when it was brand new, uh, to go back to an area of Crikey. I was commuting from here to Weybridge back on a daily basis. It was, a, I had to leave at five o'clock in the morning to stand any chance of getting into the office for seven o'clock. Otherwise I'd have spent hours sitting on the M25 and then coming home in the evening, it was no point in leaving till sort of 6.30 to, to do, do two and a half hours home because otherwise I would have just sat on the M25. It was hard work. And, you know, as a team, we pulled together as a team internally and we did some, some really special stuff 
really special stuff. And interestingly, uh, going back to me talking about Adrian Rushmore back uh, earlier in our conversation, talking about doing a residual value forecasting tool, that was one of the things that we completely revised and renewed when I returned. So I saw it, uh, they were still using quite a lot of the old methodology uh, adjusted to be uh, fit for purpose. But yeah, it was it was great. Absolutely great. I, I really enjoyed that period. This is a question that may may not work for you, um, mm-hmm. but I'm just curious whether having your business, once you had your business that you it seemed you would could go back to, did that affect you at all, having that as a sideline? Did it give you a sense of any more sense of security or yeah. take risk? Or No, it, it was entirely, it was very good to, to have that as a, something in the background that I, you know, if necessary, I could fall back on. And, you know, one of the things I learned was that whatever I'm doing, there will always be a backup plan that can be switched on straight away. And there is today and there always will be. Um, I don't mean that disrespectfully to um, my current employers or my previous employers, but for me, that's just how it has to be. My mind has to know that if, if things don't work out for whatever reason, then there's always a backstop. Now, the re- that, but at the same time, that gives you the uh, perhaps confidence, maybe the edge to try different things, suggest new things, look at things from a different angle and say, guys, you've been doing this for this long. There must be a better way. How about this? And sometimes in doing that and asking those questions, people say, no, that's not going to work. You know what? You just need to wind your neck in. And that actually is where I got to with uh, with glasses. So my role changed significantly during the period that I was with glasses on this second journey uh, from sort of consultant in 2012 through to uh, leaving them in 2017, where at that point I was sitting on a very small team that, that ran their business in the UK and contributed to other European countries. And I had found myself in a situation where what I personally felt were the next steps for the business were not shared by the group and as a result of that I needed to go elsewhere in that period I have to say there was a particular gentleman who has been uh, who was a, a good influence on my career and helped me look at life and business in a different way and I give credit to a chap called Nick Del Rio who is very very difficult to, to see on LinkedIn or anything like that but he has been part of also this group for some time he's worked with um and I'm forgetting the, the, the lady's name which is awful the CEO uh, of Autovista group he's worked with her for some time um, a very trusted person that helped me to look at life and business in a different way uh, so he, he's one of the sort of standout people. The time. Can I the, ask? Sorry, Rupert. Can I ask? Mm. In what way do you look at life and business differently as a result? He helped me to be even more open-minded than I was before. He helped me to uh, look at myself and self-reflect in a more constructive way. Not necessarily directly from him, but from the management. Uh, and leadership training that was in place at his request within that business. And that had a profound effect in different areas of my life. And for that, for the for, for Nick and for the group, I'm, I'm eternally thankful. Um, I mean, it hasn't made me, if you see what I mean, but it certainly helped put a new dimension to me. But that was it. So that, that came to an end in um, June 2017, I would have said. At that point, I had already found where I was going and uh, I had been at a presentation for Asset Finance International 
uh, in the May, and uh, I'd, I'd stood up and talked about the used car market, future forecasting, the relevance to lenders, and and how they should be looking at life in a certain with a slightly different perspective. And in the back of my mind, I had obviously the changes that I wanted to make um, within glasses that I knew weren't going to happen. Anyway, this chat came up to me called Tom Wood. And Tom was um, said to me, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I, I understand. Um, I've taken things to a different level. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And I'm doing this. And I said, sure, you are. And he said, no, I am. I said, no, you th- no, nobody's doing it. I would know if somebody was doing it. And he said, well, we're very small. So we had a series of discussions uh, for several months before we were able to come to an agreement for me to go and work for a company that was called Kazana. And nobody knew of Kazana. And when I turned up to this little office in an old school in Bermondsey that was uh, sort of a rented office and I walked in wearing my suit and tie, the eight or 10 other people in the room looked at me and were like, who the hell is that? What is that? And Tom said, ah, sorry, forgot to tell you, this is Rupert. Rupert, team, team, Rupert, team, that's a suit. And so my life started with (laughs) Kazana. That's a suit. (laughs) (laughs) He genuinely said that. This period with Kazana was, again, one of the most fabulous, exciting periods of my life. Huge risk to go from a European brand, AutoVista, Glasses, Fracker, all that sort of stuff, to go and work with a team of very young, very enthusiastic, very intelligent people that were fabulous with data, fabulous with brand but didn't quite know how to put the, what they got, which was gold, into the market. And what they were doing was a kind of uh, steroided version of what I wanted to do, which is why I felt I had to go and work with them. But it was a really quite a difficult journey. And, and Sorry, I cannot imagine how exciting it would be to have a vision that you were so passionate about that you knew – you know, you tried to do it in your previous company and got to the point where it was obviously not going to happen. Mm. So you you cared about it that much to think, well, I'm I'm going to have to move, and to then stumble across mm. people who were already doing your vision on steroids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, walk that, into a room where that was happening, and yeah, that must have felt it, very exciting. It was very exciting. So. I think I have to be clear on one thing. Glasses and I agreed to to part, okay, because I wanted to do things. And perhaps I wasn't expressing that in the right way to them, the importance of it. You know, maybe that's a learning. You, you, you don't get everything right all the time. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, when, when Tom said he was doing what he was doing in the way that he was doing it, I, I was – I can't believe it. I mean, he he was he was far further ahead than what I was in my thought process were. And I can I can talk a little bit more about what it was because that you know that's that's part of the history of the of Kazana as a company and why Kazana was was bought by Kazoo. You know, the the way in which we were looking at market pricing was entirely automated. There was no, and there it is still, and there is no uh, human element decisioning that is put onto that data. The data that Kazana were taking to be able to create vehicle pricing and products and forecast and products comes from uh, the internet. It's public domain information that we run through, that is run through data science, through algorithms. I won't tell you what those are, but for two reasons. Number one, 
it's ISP and number two, I don't understand them. What I do understand is what that output should look like. What I do understand is how that data can be used in business. What I do understand is how that data transforms used car retailing, lending and forecasting, insurance, and so forth. It was absolutely groundbreaking information. And it was very difficult to take that to the marketplace. And I think we did a very good job in the time that we had, uh, in the time that we were doing uh, the Kazana business. But it was absolutely groundbreaking. And, and of course, there are other competitors that provide vehicle valuation data. I, I understand, I get that, but they don't do it across a whole market. And they don't do it in the way that we do. Kazana as a whole was collating data on over 40 countries. So we were doing an awful lot in the background that you didn't necessarily see. And working for a startup, it really reminded me of January the 4th, 2009, when there I was going off with my £20,000, £15,000 off to the car auction and saying, oh, I'm going to do a business. I walked into a room and there were lots of people there. They knew what they wanted to do with brand. They knew what to do this, that, and the other, but they didn't quite know how to take this to the market. And as a team, we all worked together. And the rest is history. You know, we went from those sort of 10 people sitting in that room to a really nice office on just off Finsbury Square in central London, two-story office, absolutely fabulous. A great team of people that were just doing things in a different way. Very few people in that business were automotive because we did things differently, because it was about data. And that was an amazing journey. Tom Wood is an amazing, tenacious, will not give up person that that I've met in life. Very few of them around. Whenever there was a problem, Tom's perspective was, well, we're going to get over it. The question is how? Let's do it. And there just wasn't an option not to find some form of solution to it. And he bred that into the team. Yeah. So whenever we came across an obstacle, we found a way around it. We might not have done it completely the way we wanted it. We might have failed at some things as we've gone around trying to, to do that solution. But, you know, you don't gain unless you fail. So, yeah, Tom Wood is another person that absolutely stands out in my life as being somebody that, is, that I admire. And yeah, he's done an amazing job. And selling Kazana must have been incredibly difficult for him. Um, as it was for all of the team, I think, to realise that the ownership was was going to change. But, you know, we'll talk about that in just a second. But you know, Tom still has a business, Car and Classic, um, which is the uh, largest European advertising platform for, for classic cars. And he's doing uh, a, a fantastic job of transforming that. I mean, that was the other part of the business that he now runs, along with um, what was a brilliant team there. But, uh, yeah, so that was a journey. Cause I know, but, uh, you learn so many things. I mean, I was probably quite annoying because if things weren't going right in the sales team, I'd try and sell something. If things weren't going right in other parts, then I'd stick my nose in where it wasn't wanted, but try and help. But it was a very, very collaborative business. And I like that. It sounds a, a wonderful environment to have been, to yeah, have been super. in. And you didn't then choose, I guess, to, to change positions. Then you were bought. The yes, business you were. Part of was bought. Yes, it happened in um, August of uh, 2021, um, and we were bought by Kazoo. Alex Chesterman saw a number of things within the Kazana business that he felt would help uh, and complement the uh, fantastic business that he's already built. And it was, you know, it's not appropriate for me to to discuss what those are, but it was a it was a big change. It happened very quickly. It was quite a surprise. It's been a nice surprise. 
again, I've moved to a business where we are growing at an incredible rate. Alex has been enormously successful in other things that he's done. And it's just about, for people who don't know, say a little bit about who he is. And I do apologize. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, Alex, so Alex Chesterman is the CEO of Kazoo. Alex started Zoopla, uh, Love Film, which he sold to Amazon. And I think he's best described as a serial entrepreneur. I've only ever spent a few minutes with Alex, but it incredibly switched on. I didn't expect him to know who I was or anything, really, but he knew exactly who I was, what I did, and why he bought the company and what I was going to do for him in Kazoo. So it's a big organization growing rapidly. And again, we have this this team. It's a, a can-do environment, and I like that. It is a can-do environment. So my role has changed slightly and i can't talk more about that at this particular point um i've been there six uh, five months or so but we're, we're doing lots of stuff in the background but the business is all about making it easier quicker more efficient for consumers to buy a car and understand about the used car market and the car that they're buying yeah and uh Listeners in the UK will be, I'm sure, very familiar with Kazoo because you have a massive marketing budget. We do, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> we... Premiership football teams and... Uh, Darts and uh, golf and... Yeah, we're, we're, yeah. we're everywhere. But it, it is important to, to make sure that we get our, our brand across, as it will be in France and Germany, where we opened uh, more recently. Um, yes. Because Kazoo acquired Cluno in Germany. And yeah, driver yeah. in the UK, wasn't it? Subscription yeah. businesses. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a very prominent name in the UK and uh, disrupting used car retailing. Um, Absolutely. Uh, on a huge scale. So, mm. that brings us up to the present day, doesn't it? Does. it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. And is there anything you think I should have asked you that I haven't asked you? I'm not sure. I think um, understanding yourself what drives you what your motivations are is very important to being successful in business some of the profiling you can do through disc some of the studies you can do you know working through uh, some of the the books with Stephen Covey and so forth will really help an individual to work out what is important and what they want to do and I would say that you know and this is something my sister always used to say, life is short and it's for living, don't wait. And that's absolutely right. If you've got an idea, if you've got a thought about something that might be successful, or if you've got a passion to do something yourself, but you just haven't quite got there, do it. Because, you know, understanding yourself, building confidence in yourself will enable you to do so many different things in your personal life and your career. A wonderful closing statement there, Rupert. And I can't believe it. Well, I can believe, and I think it's wonderful that you mentioned Stephen Covey. Mm. Um, just going to show up ah, there. Fabulous. You've got it. It's on my bookshelf, but I can't get to the bookshelf. <laughs> no. it's, it's, it's right in front of me. Yeah. And it was unprompted that I did not. Yeah. I'm a huge Stephen Covey fan, and I didn't yeah. uh, I didn't ask you to say that at the beginning. No. Well, it's, it's so. interesting. You know, um, it's interesting that you have it as well. Uh, I'm a very structured person in some of the methodologies that I follow. And actually, I'm one of those very, really annoying people that has a, a spreadsheet every day that I update so I can colour it green once I've completed a particular task. And I, I segment what I do, not just daily, but bi-weekly, monthly, annually, and so forth, um, which I find is hugely motivational uh, for me to succeed in what I want to achieve. 
Yeah, so you have a very deliberate approach to yeah. your life. Yeah, yeah. live life deliberately. And um, I've even got three big rocks on my desk. Have you? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to show you. <laughs> Go on, show me. There's one of them. Holy moly. Aren't they beautiful? I picked them they up are. from a, they're com- almost perfectly spherical. And I they picked are. them up from a beach in Wales, which I hope ah. that's not illegal. There were many, there were lots of them. And I have them on my desk to remind me of Stephen Covey's big rocks. Yeah. Yeah, no, don't blame you. Thank you very much, Rupert. It's been an absolute pleasure. I know it feels odd to sit and talk about yourself for this long. It's very unusual behaviour and uh, it's entirely my doing. I make it happen. I'm the (laughs) one that caused you to do it. So feel no embarrassment. It was great to hear your story. I love the threads that went through it. And I think what people can do, what I hope my listeners can do, is listen to all of my guest stories and just notice things about how they did learn about themselves and how they did make little adjustments here and there to get more of what they liked into their working week and how they take skills from their early career and they get to use those in their next role and they get to add some new challenge, you know, a new dimension, but they're bringing uh, experience and skills that they had. And and Mm. there's a lovely thread through Mm. your story like that. So. Thank I think it's so important. Um, I think it's important that people do that because if you enjoy doing something at one particular point in life, there will be another chance to use it, or make sure there is because it's giving you joy. It's giving you pleasure to do it. But. Yeah, be deliberate mm. about it. Design it in. Mm. So I'll let you go. But thank you very much indeed, and I look forward to well, speaking you. to you again soon. Thanks very much, Andy. You've been listening to Career View Mirror with me, Andy Follows. I hope you found some helpful points to reflect on in Rupert's story that can help you with your own career journey or that of those you lead, parent or mentor. You are unique. And during my conversation with Rupert, you will have picked up on topics that resonate with you. A few elements stood out for me. The entrepreneurial start that he had selling cars as a teenager from outside his home. The practical ability that he had to use his hands that enabled him to refurbish those cars ready for resale. The love-hate relationship with maths that he overcame to great effect. And how his career gradually brought together over time his interests and his strengths to where he is now. And it also made me think, how much more courageous and challenging can you be in your role if you believe you have a fallback? Or conversely, if you don't believe you have a fallback position, an alternative, how risk averse might you become and how much might you be tempted to hold back on really challenging your business or your colleagues to innovate? Rupert's been through some tough times to the extent of having to literally trade a car to put food on the table. And he shared that very openly with us, which I completely appreciate. He believed in a future vision enough to part company with his employer at that time and join a much smaller operation. And I could only imagine how exciting it must have been for him to have stumbled across a business in Kazana that was already doing what he dreamed of doing. And in fact, they were further ahead than he'd got with his own ideas around it. Overall, though, the story I love the part where he's gone from selling cars on the grass outside his home, age 15, to now being at the forefront of disrupting used car retailing in the UK and other European markets. 
You can contact Rupert via LinkedIn, and there's a link in the show notes to this episode. We publish these episodes to celebrate my guests' careers, listen to their stories, and learn from their experiences. And I'm genuinely interested in what resonated with you. If you have any comments or feedback for us, if you have any questions or if Rupert's insights have helped you, please let us know by leaving a review. Your feedback helps us grow. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, or you can find the episode on our Instagram at CareerViewMirror and comment there. Thanks to all of you for sharing your feedback. Thanks also to Hannah, our producer. This episode of CareerView Mirror is brought to you by Aqualie. Aqualie is a boutique consultancy in the auto finance and mobility industry. We offer our expertise as a service to help you design and deliver projects that develop your business and the people within it. Contact me if you'd like to know more. To be among the first to know about upcoming guests, follow us on Instagram at CareerViewMirror. And remember, folks, if you know people who would benefit from hearing these stories, please show them how to find us. Thanks for listening.